On this week's episode, I sat down with Alex Rosado to discuss the relationship between mobility and stability as it pertains to human movement. Alex is a board-certified sports specialist in physical therapy, business owner, and lover of all things movement and performance. I met Alex eight years ago when I began my PT journey at his clinic, and he has been a huge influence on my growth ever since. Alex and I dove deep into the importance of core stability, how to properly address movement dysfunction, and practical takeaways that you can start using to improve your functional movement. Enjoy this deep dive with Alex. Welcome back, everybody, to the Goal Set Mindset Podcast. Today, I am joined by Dr. Alex Rosado. Alex, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you, Julie, for having me. This is exciting. It's a um, pleasure just to talk to you. Yeah, awesome. Thank you. Alex and I have known each other for a long time. He's kind of like my PT dad, I'll say. Um, <laughs> but Alex, I'd love for you to introduce yourself and just talk a little bit about your journey. So my name is Alex. Uh, I'm a physical therapist. I graduated in 2006. So I think that puts me at close to 16 years uh, as a physical therapist. Uh, was passionate about movement from an early age. I was uh, always running around, always interested in uh, movement and the physics of it and the science of it and always passionate about sports and passionate about serving people. So combining all of those three things, um, physical therapy seemed like a really natural uh, position for me and I'm glad that I chose it because I love every day at work. Um, I can't wait to go to work. Uh, so uh, I was volunteering at the age of 14 at physical therapy offices, just meeting people. Hello, how can I clean the table and make a hot pack? Uh, so did that. Uh, then I ended up going to uh, college and studied a major in bio, minor in chemistry, and played college sports while I was getting my bio degree. And then went to Long Island University in Brooklyn to get my doctorate. Uh, and at the age of 24, I graduated from DPT school and started uh, my journey of uh, learning and getting to becoming the best PT that I can be. In the beginning, I was just killing patients with service. Uh, even if I wasn't good, they were going to like me. Uh, I was a waiter. It was my background uh, th all throughout college and even while I was in grad school. I was waiting tables, so I was just going to apply that service to the patients to make them feel uh, the empathy and care. And I was healing people through love and just showing them. But then I would watch like games and watch my favorite baseball player have a labral surgery on whatever date, and then they're back at a certain date. And I'm like, wait a second, how did they get back so quickly? There's obviously something that's out there that I'm not doing because my patients aren't getting uh, back as quickly and efficiently and as, as my athletes that I'm watching on TV. So I knew there was something out there and that kind of got my journey on growth and learning and becoming a better clinician. So chasing uh, what professional uh, phys physical therapists at a major league level, uh, baseball, any, any professional, um, kind of really sparked my interest, and that's how I got into golf. Golf uh, is whatever you do to that ball is because your body created that. You know, it wasn't uh, relying on, um, on on somebody else to manipulate the ball, such as a pitcher 
throwing a ball and I'm relying on their kinetic energy to kind of or to go ahead and make the ball go faster. This is the ball is static. So the only reason how it becomes a moving object is because my body did something. So golf really opened up my eyes and added so much depth to my, the way that I look at movement from a 3D motion perspective. Cool. Yeah, and you do a lot now with the rotational athlete in general. Golf, mm-hmm. I never thought about it that way, but it's so true. Like, you have no force coming at you. You have to produce it all yourself. Mm-hmm. And it's cool that you love, like, analyzing the ins and outs of movement, the little nuances that really take somebody from entry level, beginner in a sport, all the way up to those elite levels. Mm-hmm. And as the as a business owner, you know, at Bardonia Physical Therapy, can you just talk a little bit, a little bit about what your role is there um, kind of that mix between, you know, growing yourself, but also helping other clinicians grow? Yeah, so I, uh, thank you for that. I own Bardonia Physical Therapy. We have about 11 physical therapists that are all full-time, um, which is crazy because not, not too long ago, eight years ago, I was the only physical therapist. Um, so uh, we've had a lot of growth, uh, adding a one new PT a year, you know, almost a little bit more than that. Um, right now, my day consists of building relationships uh, outside of the business, building relationships with my staff and really mentoring them and uh, connecting with them on where do they want to go, where do they want to, how do they want to grow, and hopefully I can provide um, that leadership and mentorship to help them achieve their personal goals. So on a, I, I do a lot of professional developments within my own clinics. You know, uh, we have two clinics. And... Every twice a week, we go ahead and um, go over a specific joint or movement pattern or evaluation treatment or a soft skill like listening and connecting to the patients and really finding what gets them motivated. Um, so it's a lot of fun. It's Every day is different. Um, the reason why every day is different, even though we have the same team, is because they're growing. So when they grow, there's a new... Um, aspect of their personal life or professional life that we want to continue with so uh that's kind of what i do a lot i do see i do treat patients very few though but most importantly my focus is really on the team and growing the team um and keeping them motivated yeah definitely that's awesome and that's exactly why i wanted to have you on the podcast is because you've taken on this role from you know being a super passionate in the trenches clinician to now helping other clinicians who are in that same role Education is definitely a strong suit of yours. I've learned a ton from you through the years. And today I wanted to dive into one of the fundamental things that you've taught me about human movement, most specifically the core, the importance of core strength, core stability, and how it impacts movement across the spectrum. Of course, with our elite population, but even just like the day-to-day person moving through their day, a lot of us, you know, don't truly appreciate the core, right? Mm -hmm. So... I love to just dive first into breaking down the difference between mobility and stability as it pertains to movement and kind of how the core is involved in that. Okay. So there's really two questions in there, but the mobility and stability um, was something that was introduced to me uh, through the SFMA or Selective Functional Movement Assessment. It also brought to me through uh, my golf journey and becoming understanding the biomechanics of golf and so mobility and stability is this balance uh, that allows you to have what's called functional movement 
functional movement is, hey, you're standing and you're doing something or you're, whatever it is that you're, you're, gra- your gravity is a part of your, uh, is a part of our world. We never, we never ex- escape gravity unless we're laying flat. And even so, our whole body is under gravity. So stability, the definition of stability is, in essence, anything that hold, helps you to stand upright, to be upright, to stack two bones on top of each other. So, for example, when I'm sitting, my pelvis has to hold my trunk, my trunk has to hold my head, and then you start this kind of stacking. So, a very, very simple way of looking at stability is kind of motor control, right? The efficiency of motor control, the ability to fight gravity. So, a newborn baby, uh, newborn, say let's say it's one week old, you can't sit the baby. It doesn't have the motor control, or aka the stability, to stack the bones on top of each other hasn't learned that yet so um, a lot of people are afraid of motor control because we're dealing with neurology neuromuscular system and it's so complicated but in essence if you just treat every patient like that little baby and help them support each other you're going to see some magic happen the the one thing that I see one of the biggest issues with new grads and young physical therapists is underappreciating the role of motor control. You're trying to take a hammer to every single problem, meaning that's your hands. You know, you're trying to mobilize things that honestly shouldn't be mobilized. They should be worked on stabilization. So with the principles of motor control, you can and if you find a patient and you diagnose it as a motor control stability problem and you give it the appropriate treatment within less than five minutes, the movement pattern is there and you're like, wow, it looks like a little baby miracle. And you didn't really do much in terms of your hands. You were positioning the patient in certain postures and giving it different kinds of neurofeedback to optimize the movement pattern that you're trying to get. So um, motor control, if I can go back to school, I would pay a lot more attention to that motor control because when I was in PT school, motor control wasn't sexy. It wasn't something that everything was like ortho, ortho. And I'm like, holy moly, I wish I can go back and, and really dive into motor control because that's the expression of the brain. That's You can have the greatest flexibility, but if you can't properly sequence it and time it right through your neuromuscular uh, re-education and optimization, you're never going to be able to express the movement pattern the way that you meant it to. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> and it's, it's such a relatable concept to me because in school it's it's no fault of PT schools I mean we have to start somewhere there's a lot to learn when it comes to the board's exam but it is it's so orthopedic focused and we kind of place into buckets of we have our orthopedic issues and we focus on mobility 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 and then we do have a motor control course at least at Scranton we did but it's more focused on the stroke population spinal cord like Mm-hmm. But in reality, all of those things really mesh together. All of those principles create the human body. And I love that you mentioned in your experience that when you work on motor control, the impact of that, the improvements are almost immediate, you know, because like you said, it's it's from a fundamental perspective of how we're meant to move as human beings. The body naturally knows how to move properly. You just have to kind of reteach it sometimes, Right. But going back to mobility, so we know that motor control is super important, but you mentioned that somebody can have as much flexibility in the world, 
But if they don't have motor control to control it, the movement isn't going to be efficient. Mm -hmm. Do you think that also works in the opposite way where maybe somebody has good motor control, has a good stability system, but mobility is a limiting factor? Yeah. So if you do your evaluation, I want to, I want to also do two things. When you have a mobility restriction, meaning there is a joint uh, restriction for whatever reason, or a soft tissue restriction, or a neural or a fascial restriction, it is truly stuck. They can't have proper motor control. So, having optimal motor control with limited mobility doesn't happen, right? So you can improve somebody's single leg balance, right? They can't stand on one foot efficiently for, with their eyes closed for whatever seconds you determine is normal. <clears throat> and have limited dorsiflexion, right? It's compensated. So sometimes improving the mobility allows the motor control to be fully expressed. So um, mobility, the definition of mobility to me is um, the ability to move your joint in multiple planes and it's unrestricted. So for example, if you look at the mobility stability model, uh, which I highly recommend people look up if you haven't heard of this, the body is designed in alternating mobile sections, mobile segments, and stable segments. So it's alternating mobile and stable sections of the body. So let's take the skull and the upper cervical. That is a mobile joint. The function of those joints are designed to move a lot, to position your eyeballs to see what's coming. So your head has to turn. Your neck, with the lower cervical spine, is functionally stable. It's designed to hold the head, so in order for the head to turn properly. So now limited neck stability can show up as limited cervical and occipital mobility. But it's not truly restricted. It's unstable. So if you try to start mobilizing, manipulating the lower cervical spine in the presence of a motor control problem, you can actually make it worse. You're hypermobile in an area where it's supposed to be functionally stable. So that pattern keeps going. Mobile skull, stable cervical, lower cervical, mobile thoracic spine, stable lumbro-pelvic region, keep going down the chain, mobile hips, functionally stable knee, mobile ankle, stable foot. If that pattern of alternating mobile and stable sections is broken, you're going to eventually have a problem. Now, we can't predict where the problem is because it depends on where your motor control preferences are, all right? and also how restricted you are. So for example, if you have the number one sign for me for uh, hip dysfunction starts off as knee pain and or low back pain. Uh, two weeks ago I had a patient, he's like, I had a hip replacement and my sciatica went away. I said, I know because your hip was the driver. <laughs> so it was just, so that model has been consistent and um, that revolutionized the way that I think of movement through mobility sections of the bo- segments of the body connected by stable segments of the body. And bringing that movement pattern balance has made a world of a difference for not only me as a physical therapist and seeing things clearly, but also we're fixing people significantly faster because we're working on the right things. It's amazing how much as PTs, we just keep kind of circling around the true problem and never actually hitting it, you know, um, addressing those true issues. So mobility and stability, if you're interested in learning more about that, I highly recommend that. You know, you look it up and it's a very well-known kinesiology principles in functional movement. Yeah. Wow. 
it makes so much sense when you explain it that way that the joints are stacked and that they each have these functions and like I said I mean from personal experience I'm on my clinical right now and a lot of things that I'm doing are very mobility focused because that's kind of like the basics but I've even noticed in terms of balance um you know working on like that stable foot working on the foot intrinsic muscles doing things barefoot teaching the person how to spread their toes out and manipulate their foot and when we think of balance we think of I don't know the whole body of course but like the hips and the posture and all that but I've found so much success with just focusing on the foot first and when that person is able to grab the ground and stabilize their foot everything else up the chain kind of normalizes and it's this moment of like wow and like you said it doesn't really take long to see those effects i want to get to motor control as quickly as possible and those mobility restrictions stop me from getting to motor control because i need to address i need to go back to go forward um so every mobility patient is a motor control patient all right but not every motor control patient is a mobility patient gotcha so everybody's motor control because we're actually trying to help them express movement um but so for example there are certain joints that are tend to be more difficult to regain mobility for example hip mobility there are so many muscles around there that that are long levers that have a lot of tension um and that are multifactorial the hips could be due to feet position to pelvic posture to you know alignment um there's so many different things that feed into the pelvis and why we get so much tightness upper cervical mobility could fix that in less than 20 minutes if you're doing it right you know um through different various techniques so mobility restrictions in general if you're doing the right treatment it works pretty quickly the motor control principles if you teach it the right way it works really quickly um so it and also depends on the capacity of the joint you know if you're dealing with a 60 year old person over 60 and you're you're dealing with an FAI or some sort of uh labral tears it's going to be harder you know because the structure is compromised but if you're dealing with people who are structurally sound you can get range of motion really fast um if you're doing the appropriate treatment yeah definitely and with mobility work like a lot of us in PT the basic things that we're going to do are going to be that soft tissue work maybe a little bit of stretching having them do either passive stretching or we are manually mm-hmm. stretching the muscles or stretching the joint do you feel that it's important to follow up that passive work we'll call it with some kind of active movement or motor control work in order to almost like solidify that work absolutely absolutely so for example <clears throat> let's let's take a clock all right and the hour hand is stuck you can move the hour hand from let's say we're trying to get to 3 o'clock it doesn't want to go it's the the, the clock is stuck at 12 all right it's 12 o'clock noon both arms are pointing up but i can move the hour the hand to 3:00 great we know they have the capability now you let go and it doesn't do it it doesn't go on its own the patient has no idea how to get to 3:00 so what we do is during manual therapy at the end of every session you want to do some activation so and pain free though end range rhythmic stabilization all right end range rhythmic stabilization is you're telling the brain fire at 3:00 right and then you're trying to set challenge them so they know neurologically how to get to 3:00 on their own because you set them up for success you set in their brain when you do manual resistance you're going into the brain and turning on a certain section when you do manual therapy without activation 
You're working strictly at the tissue level. You haven't done anything from a neurological perspective. So you can have the best, let's talk about shoulder external rotation, the best subscat trigger point release, the best mobilization with movement, the best of uh, whatever it is you're doing from a manual therapy perspective. We call that a reset. You can have the best reset techniques, but if you don't reload a new movement pattern and then reinforce it through your corrective exercises, they're gonna go back to square one. And like, I I felt great walking out of your clinic, but when I came back, it came back and I never, I lost it. So that's where the motor control principles is because they can't take you home with them, but they take the motor control with them forever. If you train the patient to buy into the home exercise and say, hey, look, I just got your range of motion from, let's say, 45 degrees of shoulder external rotation. I did an amazing manual technique, and I got you back to 95 passive external rotation. I want you to go ahead now and do this simple corrective exercise to keep that mobility. And that's how you make gains, by equipping your patients after your session to continue with that specific movement pattern for the next three, four days, every hour on the hour. You can't just do it twice a week. Oh, I did my, my, my activation. No, activation has to be all the time. You got to hit it so that you can connect those, um, those neurons from your brain back to that specific range, end range of motion. And you're going to see they're going to keep the range of motion that you busted your butt to go get them for, you know, to totally. get them back to. Wow. Okay. There's so many things I want to dive in, into there. Um, now, in terms of with the manual therapy, um, when you're working, let's say we'll take the shoulder, for example, you're getting them that range of motion back. I think all of us have been in that situation before where we do it. We get them to that three o'clock and then we say, okay, go perform your you know, active shoulder flexion and, mm-hmm. and they can't do it, right? So if the person has fully passive range of motion, like following our manual techniques, we can mm-hmm. then passively get them further back. Does that then mean that like the mobility problem is fixed? Or is that something that we still have to continue to reinforce with like stretches and things like that after the fact? So as long as it's pain-free, patients aren't going to do things that hurt. You know, Uh, I mean, some of them do, but there's a reason why there's pain. There's something's not right. Yeah. So if you're able to get them full passive range of motion, uh, and so they don't have a mobility problem anymore. Mobility means they have limited passive range of motion, right? It's painful. It's limited. Um, now if you've, they have the potential now for that specific joint or movement pattern because you know, it's passive, full passive. So they have it, they can do it. Now you need to train them, um, and following your motor control principles from reducing gravity as much as possible on the body, setting them up for success. So for example, I have a patient who has full shoulder flexion. I might have them supine knees bent elevated right uh, off the floor with an adduction squeeze and start working on your pnf d1 d2 but stimulating the pelvis meaning feeding neurologically the pelvis try if adduction doesn't work put a ball now i'm going to put a thera loop around their knees and abduct abduct and now flex into your d1 d2 pattern all right and see how that goes did they rock that great now we're going to quadruped we're doing quadruped, squeezing the pelvis and seeing it, can they do a D1, D2 pattern. If they can't do a quadruped, then we have to go back to supine 
or prone or sideline and start challenging it. So that's where you regress to progress depending on their capability of grasping motor control. Right. Now, here's the thing. Everybody grasps motor control differently because some people are used to that pattern. Oh, I did that back in the day. That, that motor control, it's in there. You just have to wake it up and go find it. All right. And the way you do that is by putting patients in postures and seeing how they perform. If the shoulder flexion is there in supine but not in quadruped, we need to figure out how to get them there and bridge that gap. Definitely. Now, in terms of the like motor control patterns, like you said, I love that you keep going back to this like neuromuscular perspective that mm-hmm. it's in there. And for the patient who for the, the therapist and the patient or even the coach and the client in the gym who's having trouble getting down a movement pattern. It's really cool to think about this perspective that like it's not necessarily their fault, you know? Mm-hmm. I think a lot of athletes, people in the gym, patients beat themselves up when we passively move them, we passively stretch them, and we get them there, and then they try to do it and they're like, "Oh, like I'm so weak, I can't do this." And it's a negative thing, but in reality, it's a nervous system thing, right? Like we have to wake that nervous system up. Now, you explained this process of initiating the pelvic stability along with the mobility. Mm -hmm. You painted this picture of, okay, shoulder flexion, laying supine, squeezing. Can you explain why are you going to involve the pelvis in movement of the arms or the legs? Because we need pelvic stability when you're standing, right? If my pelvis is unstable, I can't go ahead and start um, moving on top of it, right? Because it'll start creating some sort of like... Um, slight instability. So the pelvis has to be able to hold your spine and be able to move the shoulder. You know, so if you can't, if you don't have spinal stability and pelvic stability, it's going to be very difficult to move on top of it. You just can't. It's, it's not, not going to be efficient. You see it all the time with baseball players or tennis. Anywhere you're trying to do something overhead dynamic, your feet, the reason why you wear cleats is to connect to the ground to increase the ability to push off. So it has to be there. So the way babies were born, the way God made it or whoever made it, whoever you believe in, um, the, the, they, they have to start developing core control and feeding the pelvis is part of it. So if you ever try to change a, new ba- a baby's diaper, they have their knees elevated and feet off and that weight of the legs is feeding into pelvic stability. So when your feet are in the air, you are neurologically stimulating your pelvis. So that's where you're getting that compression, that, that centration, they call it. So I'm trying to make sure that I answer the question efficiently. So feeding the pelvis in terms of a neurological stimulus is essential for having functional movement of your arm. When I say functional movement, I mean standing upright, seating, where now the spine is loaded with gravity. Right. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And I think that's another thing that is commonly done improperly like in clinics is we do a lot of like supine exercises laying on the table you know doing these passive things and then all of a sudden you try to get them to do a functional task and they can't do it Mm -hmm. so the importance of making it functional involving these structures and i'll say in school i mean we don't learn about these connections between the spine and the shoulder and Again, no fault of school. I learned a lot in school and it's all been useful, but you got to take things one step further if you're really trying to improve somebody's movement and especially from a performance standpoint. So a lot of my listeners are just interested in overall fitness, improving their performance in the gym while running, whatever it is. And mobility is definitely more 
talked about. It's more known. If anybody is walking around in pain, let's let's take a runner, for example. My brother, Chris, awesome mm-hmm. runner, still runs to this day. He'll call me up and be like, oh, Julie, like my hip's hurting me. I've been stretching, but it's not really helping. That scenario happens so often, and there's definitely a good chance that maybe it's not a mobility problem. Maybe he's having trouble stabilizing, mm-hmm. and then there's some kind of faulty movement pattern, right? Is that something that you see commonly, that maybe somebody has been stretching or they think right off the bat that it's a tight muscle, but in reality, there's actually like a more proximal stability issue going on? Oh, yeah. I see that all the time with, for example, um, people say my hamstrings are tight. Oh, I mm-hmm. love that one. All right? the time. Like, all the time. Oh, the hamstrings are tight. The hamstrings are tight. It's tight for a reason. Why is it tight? You know, um, is it truly tight? Because I've had people say I have tight hamstrings. The dad comes in, my my son, he has tight hamstrings. I mean, yes. If you have a 12-year-old kid who's going through growth spurts, yeah, there most likely is a tightness because the bones are growing faster than the muscles can stretch. But in general, I do a straight leg raise, passive straight leg raise, and they're past 80 degrees. I'm like, this isn't tight at all. It's tight because of the pelvic stability. It's trying to stabilize. So the, tendon, the muscles and the tendons are getting increased neurophysiological tone because it's trying to stabilize because something is obviously wrong with their mobility stability pattern. So um, there's patients where, uh, for example, the shoulder, I have limited shoulder external rotation. I reposition the joint, I put it in a better position, all of a sudden tightness goes away. So is it really tight? Am I going ahead and start spending 10, 15, 30 minutes of manual therapy trying to open up a shoulder when it wasn't a muscle tightness. It was really a joint position fault. Mm -hmm. You know, so those are things that, you know, one of my tightness to me, tightness and weakness, one of those little things that are like yellow flags in my ears. I'm like, oh, I'm like, but why? I was like, did you, well, first of all, did you evaluate it as deeply as possible? Did you realize, did you, and then you start following the bouncing ball. What led to what? And that's where I think one of the um, uh, biggest things that I see with, the two biggest things that I see with new physical therapists is um, automatically assuming if it's tight, it's a mobility problem. That's one. Yeah, I'm, I'm guilty. I feel, <laughs> I'm I, feel, like, I feel called out like, right now. Oh, your, 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 your straight leg raise is, is tight. I have to now go beat the crap out of your hamstrings and your posterior chain and, and your calves. And, you know, it's so tight that it's pulling your pelvis and then you're not able to touch your toes when it was, A, a motor control problem the whole time. <laughs> you know, if you truly evaluated it the right way. Yeah. And the second is giving corrective exercises and taking and not truly understanding that when you ask somebody to stand and lift a band, a TheraBand, that's actually neurologically hard for a lot of patients. Stand up and lift a, a TheraBand, you know, however you want to do it, or or do a, a shoulder flexion standing on a on a on a yellow TheraBand. You're asking somebody to stand, which is the high, the hardest level of that's the hardest posture to be in outside of standing on one foot. It's the most neurologically demanding, and then two, you're resisting the movement pattern. So resistance is harder than active range of motion, and active range of motion is harder than neurologically stimulated, a pattern assisted. So for those of you who are wanting to learn a little bit more about your exercise prescription, I highly uh, suggest you look up the four by four matrix for motor control. Um, The first four is 
posture, supine, prone, and sideline would be gravity eliminated. That's the easiest posture to start treating patients. Second would be quadruped because you're loading the shoulder girdle and the pelvic girdle, but not really the spine because the spine is still parallel to the floor. Third is seated or tall kneeling, right, or half kneeling. And then fourth, which is the hardest posture, is standing. That's the first four on the left column or whichever column you want to write it. The top four are going to be pattern assistance, the actual movement pattern. You want to assist a pattern before you resist a pattern. And that's something that I see a lot. People are so eager to resist, to strengthen instead of facilitate. Facilitation and resistance are opposite, right? We're trying to help the movement pattern. When you resist it, you're actually making it harder, right? So um, we need to go backwards and how do we appropriately retract or regress to progress, right? So pattern assistance would be the first level, level of difficulty. It's the easiest, for example, ball squeeze and shoulder flexion in that supine position. So that would be pattern assisted because you're facilitating that core stabilization for them? Correct. To then lift, okay. You're, you're forcing the patient to squeeze. It's like the rubber glove on a jar of pickles, all right? You could squeeze it for them, or they you wanna teach them to squeeze it for themselves. So hey, I'm gonna help you, you're, I'm gonna hold your, I'm gonna help your shoulder flexion. You're gonna lay in supine, lift up your feet, so get a, uh, lay in hook line, ball squeeze, lift up your feet. Now you're really stimulating the pelvis and then see the shoulder flexion. Of course, you want to have proper diaphragmatic breathing and all that. And that comes a little bit of some other principles, but not getting too complicated here. That would be the easiest way to start your motor control with the shoulder patient. Okay. Now I want to jump in really quick with this movement assisted. That's one way of doing it. When you're working on a movement pattern, let's keep talking about shoulder flexion Correct. and you're doing manual <clears throat> therapy techniques. Do you feel like that falls under this category or in terms of like, um, you mentioned that sometimes you're doing manual therapy, you're repositioning the joint, so to speak, and then you see this automatic improvement. I've heard a lot of different opinions on what's actually happening to improve that. Like somebody comes in, you do manual therapy on them, joint mobilization, whatever it is, and all of a sudden they have like 30 more degrees. Mm -hmm. In your experience, why do you think that's the case? Like what's actually causing that drastic improvement mostly it's neurophysiological tone reduction so what does that fancy mean tone you're just basic when the joint is in its in a, in a dysfunctional position um the muscles know that and they start tightening up you're like oh something's wrong you're not sitting where you're supposed to be so we're, we're sticking with the shoulder just for the consistency of our analogy the humeral head is not centrated on the glenoid all right, so something is happening, and let's just say it's two millimeters migrated forward and two millimeters migrated up. That's going to be a very common uh, joint position. The humeral head is going forward and up. A lot of anterior tightness in the biceps and the pecs and however that goes. You can do all the soft tissue you want, but if you don't centrate it, it's going to, the tone's going to come back. So a lot of times when you put the joint in an optimal position, you're going to see a lot of improvement in the, in the joint range of motion because the muscles are like, ah, thank you. You're exactly where you're supposed to be. Gotcha. That feels right. So it goes back <clears throat> to that whole nervous system thing, right? Like Correct. Like you're 
your brain and your body know how it's supposed to move. It knows where things are supposed to be. And when it's out of place, it's going to compensate to stabilize. You're going to get the tightening Mm because it it doesn't like it, right? So by putting it back in its spot, which with manual therapy techniques, we know that we can physically move the humerus. Like we can manipulate the hip joint. And a lot of people like shit on manual therapy because they're like, oh, you know, we're not like breaking up adhesions. And it's like, that's not what we're talking about. Like that, we Mm -hmm. know that. But like you said, from a nervous system perspective, your brain's going to recognize, oh, that's where it's supposed to be. Great. We can we can chill out now. Like the mm-hmm. muscles can relax and then you can follow it up with all these movements. So thank you for clarifying that because that's something that I've just recently gained a good understanding of. But I think it's definitely a difficult you know, concept to grasp. Mm-hmm. Um, but back to where we were before. Yeah. With the- talking about the movement assisted squeezing, which for those of you who are listening, if you have a movement dysfunction in the shoulder in shoulder flexion like we're talking about but really anything or if you're working with a patient who does maybe give this a try and see what you think even in the gym some of my warm-ups that i do before exercise go back to this mobility stability model i'm working on that core stabilization with distal mobility prior to my workout Mm -hmm. to again train that nervous system to say okay like this is what we're doing today this is the proper position yeah you're priming Exactly. Yeah. So going back to people with limited shoulder mobility, all right? So let's say, for example, we're going to stick with that shoulder flexion. What I see a lot of physical therapists doing, even physical therapists who have 20 years experience, the patient has limited shoulder flexion, you're going to stand up and step on this band and flex your shoulder as high as possible. I'm like, you can't strengthen your way into range of motion. You know what I mean? I would not. You don't want to resist that shoulder flexion movement pattern. That's the last thing. Ever? No, not not until they they have full active. Okay. So, okay, so let's go like this. You have 90 degrees of shoulder flexion. Pretty common, right? Patient lifts up their arm to 80 degrees. We do the, we, we figured out it's truly a mobility problem. We tried different things. All right. Then let's say today we get them to 120. That's pretty good. Went from 80 to 120. Awesome. Pain is still there, but it's later on. We pushed that barrier. We gained you know, 30, 40 degrees of range of motion. So let's do the supine and go from zero to 110. And that's your window. All right, that's the range. We're going, we're going to be supine, squeezing the ball or, or abducting the, the, the knees, whatever works for the patient, and then flex to 120. Or 110, stay in that range. The next visit, you do more manual therapy. You go from 120 to 150. And now, guess what? They're doing motor control principles from zero to 145, all right? We're pushing that barrier, and that's how you keep the gains. So let's say they get now, well, we go from zero to 150, pain-free. We'll take it, right? Put them in quadruped, shoulder flexion from zero to 150. Great, you're expert at that now. We, we, in the quadruped position, we stimulated the pelvis by having them squeeze something with their heels or abducting with their heels and still facilitating the movement pattern. What you could do is, okay, let's take away the stimulus, take away the ball, take away the TheraBand, and now you're just doing quadruped active range of motion. Okay, great. You're ready to progress onto seated. Let's sit and squeeze a ball and do a D1, D2 pattern. Or let's sit and abduct your knees, do a D1, D2 pattern. Now, we loaded this pelvis to control the whole spine and do the movement pattern. Great. Looks good. 
Let's get rid of the stimulus, get rid of the ball, get rid of the band, and now do it just plain active range of motion. Now we stand up. Now that's the hardest, that's the fourth hardest neurological posture. Stand up and do that again. Squeeze the ball, abduct, just flex your shoulder. Remove the stimulus. Now we're doing active range of motion only. Stand up, ball, and then TheraBand is, is removed and see what happens. Then are they able to go ahead and now finally stand and resist the yellow TheraBand. You see how much is, has to happen before to set that patient up for success from a neurological motor control perspective? I see it all the time and it's so frustrating. I said, physical therapists, trainers, athletic trainers, any medical, any manual strength and conditioning coach, if you're listening to this, get them on the floor and then build them back up. But I see so many people wanting to do split stance, single leg stance, resisted. I'm like, that is literally the hardest thing to do from a motor control perspective. And we see it all the time. Stand up and resist these bands. Stand up and do these internal and external rotation bands. I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, this is hard. You know, we're, you know you're, it's like taking a newborn and saying, go walk. Hey, newborn baby, go walk. I'm like, no, you got to earn the right to walk. So, they, so as a strength and conditioning coach or a physical therapist or anybody doing corrective exercises, strip it all the way back and build them back up. And you're going to see miracles happen. Okay. <laughs> I like it. Let's say we have somebody in the gym who's working out, who's you know looking to build strength in their upper body, and they have movement dysfunction. They mm-hmm. don't have full shoulder flexion. Is it going to be like harmful in the long run to still resist those muscles within the range that they can tolerate? Or should they really be working on getting that full mobility, working on the motor control, nailing the movement pattern before loading it? Does that make sense? I don't, I don't, yeah, I don't want to make it seem like resistance is bad. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, but um, if you could, if you're if you're trying, I don't think I think that for specific uh, segments of the body that are supposed to be mobile, you want to prioritize that mobility. You know, because in the long run, you're going to have better quality movement. To me, I think you'll make better gains when you have full mobility, and then to, before strengthening that movement pattern. I just don't want to resist that. I don't feel comfortable because, like I said before, you can't have proper motor control of a joint that doesn't move well. It's a disrupted signal. So at some point, if you're trying to load that movement and load it heavy, you're going to eventually create a problem somewhere. And so to avoid that, because once they get hurt, now we lost a lot of time. So that instead of going to the physical therapy, you know, because you're already hurt, don't get hurt in the first place. Because mm-hmm. you're going to go to physical therapy and it's going to take you eight hours of your life, you know what I mean, at some point, versus just spending eight hours before you get hurt. So prehab for, instead of rehab. <laughs> so, um, and having a proper, healthy concept of working out. You know, Mobility Mondays, Stability Tuesdays, you know, Strengthening Wednesdays, Power Thursdays. Oh, I think you're onto something You know, here. so like, you know, um, don't just be so uh, ex- uh, in a box. Expand um, the type of neural and mobility work that you're doing. Yeah, definitely. So, Especially if somebody, I mean, a lot of people in my circle, we're training for life. Like we want mm-hmm. sustainable fitness. We want sustainable movement. I'm not going and competing for marathons right now, but... I want to move well so that I continue can continue to move well for the rest of my life. And like you said, it's 
unfortunately, you have to do some of these things that might not seem sexy and fun and um, work on some of these basics to build that strong foundation, mm-hmm. that bottom of the pyramid to then be able to climb towards the top. Yeah. Now, we talked a lot about the importance of the pelvis and the core with all of this. Where would you recommend is a good place to start for somebody who's looking to improve or even just kind of test, like, where am I at with my core stability, pelvic stability right now? I do also think a great source of understanding what the core is, is uh, Thomas Meyer's uh, Anatomy Trains, the deep front line. Um, that changed my life. You know, Thomas Myers uh, uh, has added a lot of value <clears throat> in shaping the way that I appreciate the three-dimensional human body and what's called tensegrity, the ability to have this um, physics stabili- stability throughout your body. So the deep front line, without going too crazy, um, is what I would consider the core. To me, the core is all the muscles required to have a baby stand up efficiently. That goes into your tibialis posterior and your arches. It goes down into the adductors, into the psoas, into the diaphragm, into your lungs and heart. That's part of the core. Those are muscles that are expanding and contracting. Even into your cylinder and and your throat, into your tongue, which is a little crazy, but the tongue is part of your core. Um, So those are, that neurological system or that neuromuscular system has just changed the way that I look at what is the core. Before we thought the core was the pelvic floor, your transverse abdominis and obliques, your diaphragm, and that's your core. That would be true if you had no legs and no head and arms, right? But we have arms and head. So the core, for me, is all those muscles that are required or that neuromuscular system that is activated when I stand up and efficiently. So it's expanded my my definition of what core is. I like that. That's definitely an interesting approach. But like you said, it makes a lot of sense when we think about What's the purpose of the core? Mm-hmm. Creating stability, keeping you upright. Okay, here's all the muscles that need to be on board. And mm-hmm. some of those muscles that you named are definitely weak points for a lot of people. And one thing that I've learned about in terms of stability um, is, you know, not only from a clinical perspective, but even personally, is that a lot of these muscles that we rely on to stabilize, those foot intrinsics, the tibialis posterior, even some of those pelvic girdle muscles, they don't necessarily need to be like, powerful hypertrophy training them like you would train a squat or a deadlift a lot of times it's just that simple like activation motor control are they turning on when we need them to turn on are they Mm -hmm. working you know so can you just talk a little bit about i know there's so many different things this is a bit of a general question but more so looking at the pelvic stability because that drives a lot of um, dysfunction with squatting running you know more athletic type movements where can somebody start with building that pelvic stability? Like if you want to talk about just general principles, maybe some exercise examples, what should people be incorporating into their plan? So those particular areas, the pelvic floor, the diaphragm, and the transverse, that whole cylinder, the one thing I learned the most about that was it's not a concentric focus, all right? 
And so when we teach the transverse abdominis, we were treating and, and diaphragm and pelvic floor, we're training it in a concentric fashion nine to ten times. It actually works eccentrically. And that's like, whoa. Right? So if you look at a power lifter, you know, you'll see they don't see you don't see the belly button suck in. You actually see it push out. Which is okay, that's eccentrically. You see the, you know, so all these things, even when you, a martial artist or a tennis player, exhaling, you know what I mean? You know, it's like, we're training them almost eccentrically at some time. So that, that's what I recently learned about a year ago at a DNS course was, holy crow moly, it's working eccentrically. So um, definitely starting with transverse abdominis and diaphragmatic breathing. Those are something that you want to be able to train. Um, the pelvic floor is obviously another one of those areas that you definitely want to train. But what I want people to understand is having an elong, elongated spine is a healthy spine, right? You don't want to ever shrink and contract. You want to actually get tall and long. And if you're able to maintain a normal breath and trying to really focus on good diaphragmatic breathing, sometimes it helps to just hold some water in your mouth and keep your mouth shut to really allow your breath and start doing some resistance training with water in your mouth. You realize, oh, I'm practicing training, breathing a little bit differently, <laughs> you know, um, to force yourself. Yeah, and those are great examples. And I, I'm glad that you brought up the diaphragm and appreciating the breath. And like you said, a lot of us kind of had this like picture in our head for a while that bracing the core means sucking everything in, tightening Correct, it up. But yeah. you're right. It's really about expanding it to create this stability. And I actually had um, a guest on recently, a pelvic health specialist, she talked about her idea of the core, but a lot about the pelvic floor and said that same principle that a lot of us think that during exercise, we should be contracting and doing a Kegel. But in reality, when you're doing like an eccentric phase of an exercise, that pelvic floor should be eccentrically lengthening mm -hmm. and controlling the movement. So just to wrap things up here in terms of um, exercises and things, when we're training core stability, is it more advert like more um going to be more successful if you are working on holding postures rather than like the typical abs exercises that people think of let's say like crunches russian twists things like that although they're training the abdominal muscles would you say that those fall into the category of like core strengthening core stability or should we be focusing more on those um developmental patterns if you will yeah, if you're mobilizing the right areas and stabilizing, you are working on your core. So one of my expertises is rotation, right? The ability to create rotation is, is huge. The ability to move, mobility, right? They're able to have that. But the ability to resist rotation is equally important because, or else you won't be able to have a, mo a mobile station, mobile segment push off of a stable segment. So if you're trying to stretch a rubber band and every time you stretch it, the other ob the anchor moves, you're never getting that tension. So you need to have a stable segment to push off of. Well, my analogy is this is I'm we're, we're, <clears throat> we're on a boat and we're at war and I have a cannon. And every time <laughs> I shoot the cannon, the boat keeps sliding and I'm not able to hit my target. But if that boat is able to anchor in and really lock in, I could fire the cannon and shoot 
and it'll go exactly where I want it to go with the velocity that I want it to go. It's pushing off a platter. And that's platform. So we do it all the time. When I want to fire my thoracic spine, my pelvis is going towards the thoracic spine because it's contracting. But if I'm able to stabilize that, now I'm able to increase my rotational speed and my mobility and maintain spinal alignment. So the ability to, so the ability to maintain static posture in certain positions has a place, has a purpose. It's easiest to train your diaphragm in the static posture first. Then let's add the layer of complexity of movement on top of it and building off of what you were focusing on in the static posture. And now let's make it dynamic. Let's see, so for example, let's go on a plank. We're training, we're training a plank, right? Start with quadruped, diaphragmatic pelvic floor work. Let's load it, half kneeling, diaphragmatic pelvic work. Let's go ahead and now expand. Let's go to plank, all right? Full plank, diaphragmatic breathing. Okay, now let's go to seated. And now do a D in one pattern, but don't forget about that, what we train in the diaphragmatic area and the pelvic floor and the abdominals. So you can still layer it and build it. Um, so you got to go regress as far as you need to in order for the patient to win. Right. So adding multiplanar movements is obviously more complex than trying to hold a static posture. All right. Static posture is, it's, it's, you eventually, you want to get to, Mastery, which is the ability to fight, you know, be able to get your core active, it's firing properly in the presence of movement on top of it or underneath it. Yeah. Wow. So it really comes down to looking at things in a multi-segmental fashion, at least once you earn the right to do that. Like you mentioned, start with the basics, start with supine, mm -hmm. make your way to quadruped, work through that, that um, system that you talked about earlier but then eventually these types of principles can be applied to your athletic movements right like mm -hmm. for somebody training in the gym maybe they're pretty high level they don't necessarily have any injury or pain would you recommend that they consider these principles during their heavy loaded movements their squats their pressing should we be consciously making an effort to control our breath to think about the TA or does that just like happen naturally? So this is a pain-free patient, more like not a patient. This is, this yeah, is yeah. A, a Somebody, performance client. Exactly. Okay. Um, yeah. So if you're going to be doing a power session, you always start with your mobility warm-up. Then you do what's called pillar prep where you're focusing on um, your core activation, neural activation, right? You're turning on um, these muscles. Uh, you want to make sure that your neurological system is prime. Just as much as you're focusing on thoracic mobility, hey, I'm going to work on my stretching. That's one of it. Now I'm going to work on my activation, my neurals. I got to get my neurological system prime. And then, and part of that is your breath and your pelvic floor and getting that, waking that up, sending the signal, hey, let's go. We're going to get ready. And then um, progressively going into that. So part of an exercise session, if depending on... Um, Irregardless, actually, of what you're doing, you're always doing your mobility warm-up and your pillar prep. That's part of every single... That's setting yourself up for success. That's, hey, checking the tires, making sure everything is found, found, the foundation is strong and active and ready to go. Awesome. Wow. Perfect <laughs> takeaway. Perfect way to wrap things up. Alex, this has been an amazing conversation. I have to say, I prepped a ton of questions and I didn't even ask half of them because this flowed really well. So... Thank you so much for coming on. I'd love to just ask you if you can share with our listeners, if anybody would like to reach out to you, ask you any questions, um, if you can just mention what the best way is to do that. 
Um, yeah, my email, it's uh, director at bardoniapt.com. It's the easiest way to reach out to me. Um, and I look forward to seeing your growth, seeing your podcast grow, seeing where your career ends up. Um, but uh, this is pretty cool. And thank you for the opportunity to be a guest on your podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode of the Goal Set Mindset Podcast. If you're interested in learning more about mobility and stability, be sure to check out the links in the description of this episode. I would love to hear your thoughts on this conversation. You can find me on Instagram at goalsetmindset underscore JP or on our Facebook page. Thank you so much for tuning in. And as always, we will be back next week with another episode.